that. Let's turn to Revelation <laughs> chapter 16. I greatly admire you for coming week after week as we have seen such bad news in the book of Revelation. Good news ultimately, bad news before the good news comes. I'll make a confession to you. There are some truths that I find difficult to handle. There are some portions of the Bible that I look forward to preaching, teaching. There are others that I don't want to deal with. I have not looked forward to Revelation 16. I wasn't at home this week thinking, goody, goody gumdrops. I can't wait to talk about all that wrath and judgment. In fact, this chapter really stretches the imagination as far as suffering is concerned. And I can understand why some people would want to skip sections of Scripture like this altogether and just read a nice comforting psalm or a gospel story, a parable. And yet we must remember that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. You say, well, what is the profit of chapter 16? I think there is great profit in this chapter, principally that people would realize God does know the end from the beginning, has called it, has written about it, and is warning people everywhere to repent, to change. When you think about the future, if you are realistic, things don't look great as far as our immediate future is concerned. In a book written by Rob Nelson and John Cowan in a section called 100 Harshest Facts About the Future, they talk about where we're going. 100 Harshest Facts About Our Future. I won't read all 100 to you. Here's a few. A children born in 1994 will face lifetime tax rate of over 80%. A young black man in Harlem, New York is less likely to live until age 40 than a young man in Bangladesh. The average murderer serves less than seven years because of prison overcrowding. The median home price has jumped 78% since the early 1960s, making ownership out of reach for many young families. 40% of high school seniors can't name three South American countries. One-third of today's ninth graders can't write a brief summary of a newspaper story. During every 100 hours on our inner city streets, there are three times more young American men who lose their lives in gunfire than those killed during the 100 hours of Operation Desert Storm. Those are harsh truths. They're hard to swallow. And as harsh as they are, I have to disagree with the premise. They are not the harshest facts about our future. Chapter 16 has not 100, but seven of the harshest truths about our future. They are bowls that God will allow to be poured out upon the earth in the form of judgment. We saw in chapter 15 that God was very reluctant, but finally the courts of heaven were closed 
and the smoke filled the temple. And seven angels were poised, ready to pour out their judgments. And finally, the decree went out. It is time. Let them go. These are the seven last culminating plagues of wrath upon planet Earth. This difficult chapter was meant to warn people of the future so that they would turn to Christ. In fact, the tribulation, during that time, there will be several chances for people to change. But sadly, they will not. Some will. The world, however, at large will not. A family moved to a little community and they were greeted by the pastor of a local church who invited them to church. The husband, the head of the household, said, well, maybe someday I'll come to church. Tell you what, when I get straightened out, I'll come. Well, months went by and he never came. And so the pastor called him again. It was the same excuse. Well, you know, my life isn't straightened out. And when things get straightened out, when I get straightened out, I'll be at church. Well, he died a few months later and the wife asked the pastor to do his funeral. So he did his funeral and one of the members of the congregation asked the minister, was he a Christian? And he said, well, I can't judge his heart. I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing, he's a man of his word. He said he would come when he got straightened out and he did. <laughs> what a shame to get straightened out by rigor mortis than by righteousness. We come now to this culminating phase, and today we're going to read the first 11 verses and consider not all seven, but five of the plagues that come in this last blow of judgment. Five, because these five are meant for a purpose, to change the world. Verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and a loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. It became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water. And they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is, the one who was, and who is to be, because you have judged these things. They have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another angel from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain." They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Five bowls are given, and a reaction is given. And 
simply I want to sort of divide this up this morning into those two categories. We're going to look at the five bowls of wrath, which is the releasing of God's wrath, and then we want to consider the end of verse 9 and 11, the refusal of man's will. God is issuing forth judgment intended to wake mankind up upon the earth, and He's done that time and time again during the tribulation, but man refuses. Now you'll notice, if you haven't already, that there is a similarity between these bowls of wrath, and by the way, the idea of, of a bowl, again, is a shallow saucer. Shallow, flat, and it's got room for a libation or some kind of a drink offering, some liquid content, but because it's shallow and broad, it could be poured out easily, quickly, and the idea is that these judgments will come at the end very, very quickly in rapid succession, one right after the other. There were seals, there were trumpets, and now there are bowls. And you might really say, this is the Super Bowl. These are God's bowls poured out upon the earth. But there is a similarity between these judgments and the seven trumpet judgments. And for that matter, there's a similarity between all of these and the plagues in Egypt. Some of the plagues in Egypt seem to match the plagues that will go on during the tribulation period, and they also match the seven trumpet judgments that we saw in chapters 8 through 11. But there is a difference. First of all, the plagues of Egypt came upon the Egyptians only. The children of Israel were exempt. They were in the land of Goshen and virtually untouched by any of these judgments, so that the plagues that happened in Egypt were localized. The seven trumpet judgments are partial. That is, a third of the green grass is burned up, a, a third of the water is affected, a third of the seas are affected, a third of mankind is affected. This now is total. The first was local, the second one was partial, the third is total. It's all of the terrors and the assembling of all of the horrors, the worst of the past plagues of God now completely inundating all of the earth. It is the final judgment. Well, let's look at these bowls. The first bowl in verse 2 is a bowl that involves the physiology of people, bodily sores. The first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Notice that God is aiming this judgment, and it's a bullseye. It's not just poured out on everyone, but on a certain group of people. They're targeted, and God aims it at the worshipers of the beast. He's done that in the past. You may recall in the book of Joshua, in chapter 10, when Israel fought the Amorites, and they were having a battle. It says that God sent hailstone from heaven on the enemies of Israel. And so God was really throwing rocks at them. And it didn't hit the children of Israel, it hit just the Amorites. It was very selective. And it says that more were killed by the hailstones that fell from heaven than the army of Israel. Then there was the worship of the calf in the wilderness. And the scripture says the Lord plagued those people, those who worshiped the calf. Why is God judging the worshipers of the beast? Well, remember the second commandment. 
You shall not erect an image and bow down and worship it. That was graved in the, the Ten Commandments. They're worshiping the image of the beast. They're breaking the second commandment. They've already broken the first commandment, and God is judging them for it. There is an unfulfilled prophecy, I think, I want to read to you. It's in Exodus, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 28. It has never happened in Israel's history, and it could be that it's reserved for this period. The Lord will strike with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, with the scab, with the itch from which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you in the knees and on the legs with severe boils which cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. Could be that this scripture has its fulfillment here. The worshipers of the beast, those who bow down to the image of the Antichrist, that the second beast, the false prophet, erects. We saw in chapter 13. Now remember, there was a prediction. If you go back just a couple of chapters to chapter 14, Look with me at a couple verses. There was a prediction that was made, and it's partially fulfilled now. It will be totally fulfilled in eternity. Verse 9, Revelation 14. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength, into the cup of his indignation. Then, or after this, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This bowl, which includes a, a loathsome sore, the boil, reminds us of the sixth plague that came upon the Egyptians. It says that God told Moses to take some ashes of a furnace and sprinkle them up to the heavens, and the wind carried it, and it became a loathsome sore boils upon the Egyptians. Literally here, the word boil means an oozing boil or sore. Now normally, a boil as such is an outward display of an inward problem. There's something going on inside the physiology that causes the boils to erupt. So you look at somebody with boils and you think, man, you know, it's not just a skin problem. There's something going on inside. And there is a problem here. The problem is the worship of the beast. That's the real issue. It's visibly uh, visible on the outward with these boils. Remember Jesus said to the Pharisees that they looked beautiful on the outside, but they were whitewashed tombs or marked graves full of wickedness and all corruption. The fact that he called them marked graves or whitewashed sepulchers, you know, here you guys are decked out, but because of your self-righteousness, because of your hyper-legalism, that's the outward demonstration of the problem on the inside. You are filled with dead men's bones. So the boils erupt here. Now, as far as this bowl is concerned, for that matter, all of the bowls, it could be that there is no natural explanation. It could be that God uses nature, certainly. It could be just a supernatural thing that happens apart from any natural uh, coincidence uh, at all. But at the same time, it could be. We don't know. We're not told. For instance, this could simply be uh, the result of nuclear fallout. They say that uh, people who, well, look at Chernobyl in 1986. Milk cows were contaminated. Farmland was contaminated. Uh, people suffered grievous sores, loathsome boils because of the fallout. And that was just one nuclear reactor. Imagine if the whole world used nuclear weapons what that could do. There is another possibility, and I really have been saving this for this chapter. 
In chapter 13, we talked about the mark of the beast. And, and you may recall we talked about the little microchip that they have invented. They injected in cattle or pets. And you can identify pets around the world. You can identify uh, where uh, that animal, or for that matter, person might be. And, and they're experimenting with these microchips in certain parts of the world, putting them into people and watching uh, the results. I mentioned to you back then that the guy who developed it was named Dr. Carl Sanders, who holds a PhD in engineering and electronics. He developed, along with a team of people, this microchip to possibly solve some of the problems of missing children and thieves and criminals and so forth. And just if everybody had a number, they could be tracked. Dr. Sanders, along with the team who developed this microchip for the purpose, said that there were nine levels of information that these designers wanted to have included in this microchip. Number one, the person's name and an image or picture of his face or her face. Number two, they wanted the social security number with extra international digits so it could be a worldwide system. Number three, a fingerprint identification was to be included. Number four, physical description. Number five, family history. Six, your address. Seven, criminal record. Number eight, your occupation. Number nine, your income tax information. They'll figure a way. And doing a little bit of research on this, off of the internet I found this interesting little article. This microchip is powered by a tiny lithium battery which has a recharging circuit built in. The charging system operates and is regulated by the changes in body temperatures. Dr. Sanders said they spent one and a half million dollars on research to determine an optimal primary and secondary place in the body for this chip. The data that returned said that there were two places in the human body that the temperature changes most rapidly. They were number one, the forehead just below the hairline, and number two, the back of the hand. Dr. Sanders talked to a doctor at Boston Medical Center and asked what would happen if that concentration of lithium, if the chip should fail. The doctor told him that you would get, quote, a grievous sore, close quote. Could it be that the angel that goes forth from God in this judgment causes all of the lithium batteries to fail at one time. And those who have taken this mark of the beast, just a thought. Let's move on now to the second bowl in verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became blood as of a dead man and every living creature in the sea died. Again, this is like the plague of Egypt when the Nile turned to blood. The source of irrigation, the source of water in Egypt became blood. And it's also like the trumpet judgment, where a third of the sea died and became like blood. Back in California, we had what we called the red tide. And there were seasons of the year when this red tide would occur, uh, tiny microorganisms in the sea that would cause the death of fish and uh, it, it, this appearance of red up and down the coast. You didn't want to go out uh, into the water at that time. It just stunk so bad. And sometimes these red tides uh, become very, very severe and can endanger the whole population of that area. For instance, in 1949 in Florida, there was a red tide that encompassed a huge area, many, many miles. By midsummer, the sea had become 
red like blood and very viscous, thickened. Because of billions of these one-celled creatures that are called dinoflagellates, caused miles of dead fish, and anyone who ate fish in that area was poisoned. They said that it has the potential to uh, destroy, if people were to live off of seafood, uh, huge numbers of population, huge numbers of people in those areas. I was reading something by an astronaut who walked on the moon. He was describing the earth. He said, quote, as he looked out, our world appears so big and beautiful, all blue and white. You can see from the Antarctic to the North Pole, the earth looks so perfect. It must be awesome. From that perspective, to see the the beauty of planet earth, just like we look up, up and see the moon, to be on the other end and see the earth as the light of the sun would reflect upon it, blue and white, so beautiful. But that's a description of the earth before the tribulation. During that time, especially at the very end, it won't be beautiful to look on at all because of these judgments, the sea becoming red. Look at the next bowl of wrath poured out. This is very similar to the one we just read, but rather than the ocean, it affects the springs, the sources of water. It says, Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Experts are already telling us that one of the great crises in the future is the water supply. Right now, water is contaminated in parts of the world, especially underdeveloped countries. Uh, People, because of what's in the water, die because of the diseases that are carried by the water. But it's estimated that every nation in the world to supply its population needs 725 gallons of water per person, replenishable water. Now, the earth has about 10 times that, but the problem is we are expending water more quickly than we are replenishing the water worldwide. Then we have pollutants in the atmosphere like acid rain, toxic waste, oil spills that cause a deterioration of water supplies. Add to that this supernatural plague And you've got major, major worldwide catastrophe. Now, something else to keep in the back of your mind. Let me refresh you with something we read about in chapter 7. Turn over to chapter 7 of Revelation for just a moment. Also occurring during the tribulation, perhaps sooner than what we just read, no doubt. Chapter 1, or chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, so that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Now, as much as I don't like wind, we need it. It's part of the cycle, hydrological cycle. As the uh, ocean evaporates into the air, the wind carries it across the land, and it cools and condenses in, in the form of rain. It comes to the earth. Without wind, to carry that moisture across the land, the world would become like a vast desert because of the lack of water. So it could be that there's already a drought, already a water shortage, already contaminations around the earth. A third of the water has already been affected by one of the judgments we have seen. And add to that drought this, worldwide, the springs of water are now affected. What would people do? Well, there's sodas and 
There's canned juices, but how long would that last? I know things go better with Coke, but not for long, especially when that's all you've got. Water depleted. Now people will no doubt be driven to ask, perhaps even reading this would ask, how could a God of love even allow that? That is so unfair. That is so unjust. That is so unrighteous. And perhaps anticipating that, that's why the angel will say, the angel of the waters in verse 5, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is, who was, who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. It sounds like what one woman said after a quake in Southern California when buildings were devastated and apartments fell down and homes crashed in and cars were affected and electricity went out. She walked outside and saw the effects of the earthquake and said, Whose wrath could this be? And perhaps people would, knowing it's from God, point the finger at God and say, how could a God of love allow this? The angel is quick to defend the righteousness of God and simply say, well, you've shed blood, so God gave them blood to drink. Or they have shed blood, so God gave them blood to drink. Now this is a law. It's a spiritual law we find throughout the whole Bible that we get what we deserve. It's called the law of sowing and reaping. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. That's how Paul put it. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You think, I'm getting away with a lot of stuff. I have sinned in this area and God hasn't done anything about it. No problem. Yet. And that's the operative word, yet. Because whatever a man sows, he will reap. We see that in the Bible. Pharaoh tried to drown young Hebrew babies who were male, right? That was his plan. Drown all the young kids who are guys. Diminish their population. How did Pharaoh die? He was drowned in the Red Sea. Haman built this huge gallows to hang Mordecai the Jew. What happened to Haman? He got hung on the gallows he built. Voltaire, back in the 18th century, who was a French atheist, wrote all sorts of things against Christians. At his home, one evening, wrote these words, In 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took the 12 apostles to rear. Can you imagine saying that? I'm going to destroy what 12 apostles built. I'm going to destroy what Jesus built. In 20 years, Christianity will be destroyed. And it'll be my hand that does it. Within 20 years after his death, his house from which he wrote that was the center of Bible distribution in Western Europe. So God will give you what you deserve unless, unless you allow Jesus to take what you deserve. If you would confess your sin and turn to Jesus Christ, then all of the wrath of God that God allowed to come on Jesus at the cross, He'll take it, remove it from you. See, either He'll take it for you or you'll take it for yourself. And they are getting here what they deserve. It's not like they haven't had opportunity, right? The gospel has come in many ways and they have spurned it and they have killed the prophets who gave the message. They shed the blood of the prophets and the saints. God gave them blood to drink. Let's look at verse 8. It's now the fourth bowl in rapid succession after the third. 
Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. Now this is sort of a contrast to one of the trumpet judgments where a third of the sun is darkened. Now you'll see in the very next bowl judgment that the sun is darkened, that darkness falls upon the kingdom of the Antichrist. But right now, uh, power is given to the angel and the sun scorches men with heat. It sounds a lot like burn that is a radiation burn. In the electromagnetic spectrum that measures the wavelengths of radiation, there's long wavelength radiation like radio waves and it's a very slight, long, sloping wave. And then there's short wavelength radiation like gamma rays, which is very, very compacted. The shorter the wavelength, the more dangerous to the human body. It can alter cell structure. It can kick a photon. Uh, a photon can kick an electron out of orbit in the cell structure and, and uh, cause all sorts of problems. It can destroy. So you could go to the beach, say, on a cloudy day, and you think, man, it's, it's mild today. It's, there's a cloud cover. This is great. I could play outside all day. At the end of the day, you're a lobster. You're worse than if it was open sun and no clouds. Why? Because the long wavelength has been attenuated, stopped by the clouds, and the short wavelength has penetrated the clouds, and it's on your body. And too much exposure can cause all sorts of problems over a period of time. So this bowl may indicate some alteration in uh, the Earth's atmosphere. It could be some alteration in the sun. Uh, they say that the core of the sun is helium, and if it were to expand outwardly, it would incinerate the Earth. There's been some problems with explosions of sun uh, causing outages already on the Earth. People look to the ozone layer often when they read this passage of Scripture, saying perhaps the ozone will become so thin, that protective layer, that it would scorch the sun would mankind. It is a problem. Scientists for several years have talked about the ozone layer and global warming, warming the greenhouse effect upon the earth. Uh, one group called the World Wide Watch Institute said, the ozone layer in the upper atmosphere that protects us from ultraviolet radiation is thinning. The very temperature of the earth seems to be rising, posing a threat of unknown dimensions. Virtually all the life support systems on which humanity depends could be threatened. And we know that within the last 12 years, five of those years have been the warmest since 1900. You say, well, I'd never know that by this winter. Well, that's here. But overall, the globe is warming because carbon dioxide that is emitted by our use of fossil fuels gets emitted into the atmosphere or when we take out the aerosol can and emit all those chlorofluorocarbons that hinder, that deplete the ozone. And so heat gets in, but heat cannot be dissipated fast enough, and you have that greenhouse effect. However it happens, it happens. We could explain it, but it'll happen. And perhaps this is what Malachi meant. This is what he wrote in prediction, surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord God Almighty. And so God allows the sun to scorch them, perhaps to wake them up. This is a foretaste of eternity if you don't turn. This is a preview of coming attractions. 
that kind of heat would surely cause people to turn. Yet it says, And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So now we get to the fifth bowl in verse 10. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on, notice this now, the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. I don't know if you've ever been in a power blackout. Well, last summer we had out west, several states were blacked out by that uh, problem that was up in Oregon. And California, New Mexico, Arizona, several states were affected by it. I was in Riverside during that day, and it was about 110 degrees, and there was a power outage, so you couldn't get relief. Air conditioners didn't work, and the lines clogged up, and so it was black and it was hot. I've been in India where for days things get blacked out, and it's hot and it's dark. But here in this fifth bowl, it is directed at the kingdom of the beast or the Antichrist. His kingdom becomes full of darkness. Now again, some people figure, well, perhaps the intense heat in the previous bowl comes from the sun expanding into a supernova, and after that phenomena occurs a blackout, it becomes dark. Or some suggest nuclear winter, if there was a nuclear problem, what would happen over the earth? Carl Sagan, who recently died before he passed, was afraid of this and said that that nuclear age, if released, could plunge the northern hemisphere into nuclear winter, where a third of mankind would die with the descent of night around the clock, the drop of te temperature by 70 degrees. But there's something deeper, perhaps. It's darkness that comes upon the domain of the beast. In the scripture, the Bible says God is light. And the absence of light, darkness, is really a metaphor of evil, of Satan. Satan is called the prince of darkness. The first creative act of God was to dispel darkness. God said, let there be light. And he created the sun, he created the moon, and light was. In the New Testament, we are called to walk in the light as he is in the light. And if we sin, that we walk in darkness. And then the scripture says, put off the unfruitful works of darkness. So it seems only right that the kingdom of the beast who follows Satan would have darkness that would invade it. Also, it's interesting, the, the, the ancient rabbis in the Babylonian Talmud tell us that they believe that darkness would be God's judgment upon the world for an, an unusually wicked sin. Perhaps they were thinking back to Egypt. Remember, one of the plagues that fell upon Egypt was a darkness that could be felt by people. It was so deep. And the final plague of the death angel that sprung the children of Israel from Egypt was preceded by a darkness that covered the land. And what was the greatest sin that the world has been guilty of? It was the crucifixion of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And when he was on the cross, darkness covered the land. And now darkness covers the domain of the Antichrist. This fifth bowl is predicted by the prophets and by Jesus. Isaiah said in chapter 60, darkness will cover the earth, deep darkness the people. Joel chapter 2, verse 2, the day of the Lord is coming 
It is at hand. It's a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Jesus in Mark 13 said, In those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And then we notice it says, And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. It's, it's difficult. It's impossible to imagine. Except, have you ever been hurt somewhere on your body? And to divert or to distract the attention from the pain, you, you inflict pain somewhere else. When I go to the dentist and he's poking around, I usually pinch the back of my hand. I've done that since I was a kid. You're like causing pain elsewhere to get your mind uh, off of that and onto something else, to divert it, to send a different signal up there so that you're not just focusing on that area of pain. Gnawing or chewing their tongues because of the pain. It is said of Jesus Christ that He is the light of the world, and light shines in the darkness, but darkness does not comprehend it. And Jesus said men love darkness rather than light. It's like He's saying, you love darkness? I'll give literal darkness to all those who follow the beast. Well, these are five of the plagues, and now I want you to look at the end of verse 9 and verse 11. The refusal of man's will. And men were scorched with great heat, and they changed and turned their lives to Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be great if it said that? Don't you think it should say that? Don't you think people would go, Duh, okay, I got the message. I'm not going to keep going on in this pain. It says, They blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give Him glory. It tells us, first of all, they didn't repent. Secondly, they knew who was doing it. Now, isn't that the height of arrogance and pride and stubbornness? I know it's God. I know what's going on. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to repent. Neither grace nor wrath can move these guys. William Newell once wrote, Men who will not be won by grace will never be won at all. Even wrath won't move them. Why? Because the world will have become so accustomed to spiritual darkness and the Antichrist deception. That's all they know, that they're just left now to curse the light. It's sort of like what happened back in the 1700s, the Bastille, which was this huge castle-like prison in Paris, France, was about to be torn down. And they brought one of the prisoners out of the lowest, darkest dungeon where he had been captive, and they were going to release him. Because he was so accustomed to the darkness, the bright light bothered him to the extent that he begged to be put back in that prison until death. He'd become so accustomed to darkness, that's all he knew, that the bright light irritated him, and he wanted his darkness once again. In the same way, people can reject Jesus Christ so much, their hearts become so hard against God that it's too late. By the way, verse 11 is the last reference to their unwillingness to change. You'll read about it no more. They, they blaspheme God. It tells us then that these first five plagues were sent by God in order to get people to wake up and repent. But they wouldn't do it. And now they're set. Now they can't. Now it's too late. They've been unwilling, and now the cement has dried. Many people are sorry for what they've done. Or I should rephrase that. There are people who are sorry for the consequences for what they've done. 
They're sorry for the condition they're in. They look back on their lives, the choices that they've made, the road that they've walked. They feel so full of remorse and sadness and sorrow, but mostly because of where they're at. Our prisons are filled with people who are truly, truly sorry that they got caught. Not everyone. I'm not painting with a broom and saying that's the position of everyone. But certainly many people can be caught and they're remorseful, not for what they've done, but of the consequences. It's like the teacher in Sunday school said to her class, can anyone give me a definition of repentance? One little boy said, yeah, it's being sorry for your sin. A little girl piped up and said, no, it's not. It's being sorry enough to quit. That's repentance. And that was God's whole motivation with these plagues is to get the world to turn, to change, to repent. By the way, the word repent means not to go put sackcloth and ashes on your body necessarily, not to beat yourself with a whip. It means to change direction. That's what it means, to change your mind. It's as if you're walking down the street and God taps you on the shoulder and says, Hey, you, turn around. Quit going that direction. Follow me. Go my way. Go my direction. Follow my plans, my purposes for your life. If you were to say, Okay, I forsake living just for myself and going that way, and I'm going to follow your direction. That's repentance. But they wouldn't do it. In fact, they blaspheme God. God has given them preachers. God has given them martyrs. God has given them miracles. They won't change. A heart can become so hard, you can reject them over and over and over and over and over. And pretty soon, you can look at truth and it doesn't even bite. It doesn't affect you. Maybe you remember God knocking on the door of your heart when you were a child and you felt that pull, that tug toward God to give your life to Jesus Christ, but you said, I'm too young. I've got so much of life ahead of me. Later on you felt that tug as you had children in your 30s and 40s and your excuse was, I'm too busy. But later on I'll do it. And then when you're a little bit older and you said, oh, I'm too old, oh, maybe a little bit later and later, oh, maybe later, I'm a little too old. And then you're dead and it's over. There's no chances left. Maybe he's trying right now. Maybe he's been knocking at the door of your heart for some time. Maybe you've considered Jesus Christ. And maybe even now the Holy Spirit is touching some hearts who are listening right at this moment, and you're battling with it. A famous rabbi was walking with his Jewish disciples, and they were discussing repentance. They said, Rabbi, when is the best time to repent? He said, the last day of your life. They protested and said, the last day of your life? That could be too late, for no one knows when the last day of his life is. He said, that's my point. You should repent now. To solve the problem, you should change now, because you never know when the last day of your life is. And so we ought to live life in the present as we read about the future and make decisions accordingly. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the faithfulness of the Spirit of God to knock on the door of our hearts, to seek to enter in. 
You are so patient, Lord. You are so loving, so filled with grace. We have been reading about the time when that is over, when grace is used up, when mercy is no longer extended, and you deal in that culminating era of judgment. But as right now, grace is still extended, and we can either get what we deserve or Jesus can take it on the cross for us. You have given us that choice of life and death. And we pray, Father, that we would choose life in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.